This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class. From HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And today we're going to start the podcast by telling you a story about two men with the last name West. So in 1903, a guy named Will West was admitted into Leavenworth Prison in Kansas. And as was customary at the time, his measurements were taken. And that wasn't just like weight and height. It was things like the length and width of his head and measurements of specific fingers. And while all these measurements were going on, one of the clerks at the prison had this really strong feeling that he had measured this guy before. And so he started to look through records. And sure enough, a William West had been admitted to prison and measured just two years earlier. So it seems like, okay, It's William West again. He's back in prison. But there was one thing majorly wrong with this scenario, and that was that William West was already incarcerated in Leavenworth. So who was this guy? Spooky. So the two Wests were brought into the same room. They weren't related, but they did look strikingly similar. They were remeasured, and their numbers were also almost identical. The only easy-to-document thing that was undoubtedly different was their fingerprints. So you'll see this story told in different ways, and it's likely it's just as much a prison fable as truth, but it's always told for the same reason, to show the fallibility of identification. So what do we mean by this? Well, for example, your name certainly doesn't distinguish you, right? Yeah, you can change your name. There can be another William West or another Dublina out there, and who's to say you're the person you say you are? Right, but your face doesn't set you apart either, or neither does the measurement of your left pinky or your cheek. So in an era before DNA evidence, the moral of the West story was that only fingerprints are unique. However, as the facial and the physical measurements of the two prisoners suggest, fingerprints weren't 
always the standard means of identification. They certainly weren't in the position we think of them now. For about 10 to 20 years, a system of identification and filing called Bertinage. So the system seems pretty primitive now. We're going to talk about it in detail later in the podcast, so you'll you'll understand it better. But it, it does seem very quaint, very old-fashioned, and a whole lot less elegant than fingerprints. But it was a major step out of filing chaos that dominated the um, criminal justice system in the 19th century. And it hasn't been completely relegated to history either. You are still familiar with certain aspects of it, whether you know it or not. Every time you see a celebrity mugshot in TMZ or just in your local paper, you're looking at a holdover from the Bertillon system. So before we get too much into that, though, we're going to have to do a brief discussion of the criminal justice system and its developments and its problem areas in the 19th century. So as professionals replaced amateurs in investigations and as evidence began to sometimes trump witness testimony and as forensic sciences like toxicology and forensic pathology developed into distinct areas of study, a few problems emerged. There was too much information. More stuff meant more paperwork. So while police would likely be better able to pinpoint a suspect or identify a repeat criminal due to the information in their files, I mean, it was like good luck finding that information. So this was especially problematic as new technologies were adopted before suitable record-keeping methods came along to go with them. Exhibit A, photography. Yeah, so the first daguerreotypes were produced in 1839, and a remarkably short amount of time after that, just four years later, the first mug shots were taken in Belgium. But criminal photography didn't exactly take off after that. Daguerreotypes were very pricey. They required immense levels of skill. And even later photographic methods still required really long exposure. So imagine, you know, you're trying to get this guy who you've just arrested to sit still for 20 minutes and get your picture taken. It's, sometimes they'd have to resort to actually dropping someone into a chair to get a non Well, that's inconvenient. Yes, it's definitely inconvenient. But pretty much as soon as prices and exposure time started to drop with photography, it became a common thing in police stations. And it's easy to understand why. It's a useful tool. The head of the Paris Police Detective Division, Gustave Massey, started to require all photos be taken. And then police stations around the world eventually started to assemble what were often called rogues galleries. I think that's a really cool name, by the way. They were photos of criminals supposedly useful for or identifying repeat offenders. So there was one problem with this. The rogues galleries just became huge, jumbled stockpiles of photos. So file cabinets filled with images that were not cataloged in any way. Sounds like my own photo collection. (laughs) Me too, which is sort of like the bane of my existence sometimes. But there was another problem with the photo collections. Besides their tendency to get out of control, they weren't necessarily accurate. Photos could be taken in a different light, at different exposures, and at different distances. And so they'd look remarkably different. I mean, just imagine taking a photo with a professional camera and comparing it to the same image taken with your camera phone yeah, or something. Yeah, I mean, every, everybody is familiar with the differences that uh, can be perceived in photos. And so early mugshots, that's the big problem with them. They weren't standardized. A photo at a different 
exposure, different lighting or something is not going to necessarily be recognizable as the same guy. Criminals were even photographed with hats sometimes or hair obscuring their features. And even if the photos were standardized, it didn't mean that the subject couldn't still dramatically transform his or her appearance with hair coloring, facial hair, disguises, you name it. Or just get older and start to look different. There's a 2009 Economist article on human identity, which I thought was really interesting and mentioned a unique problem in the 19th century. And that was the traveling criminal facilitated by railways. And this is kind of simplifying things, but you can imagine a time when criminals were more local and a local police force would know who to keep an eye on, but with somebody who could dramatically change their identity and skip town on the next train, police needed a way to recognize recidivist criminals they'd never seen before. And clearly photos, while useful in a certain respect, weren't the way to do it. Yeah, neither was branding, which I guess was done in that the past. That was the old school way of, of recognizing repeat offenders. So enter Alphonse Bertillon, who in 1879, at age 26, had just gotten a job as a clerk in the Paris Police Department. Bertillon was from an incredibly illustrious family. His father, Louis, was a famous medical professor and a statistician. His older brother, Jacques, also became a noted statistician and a demographer. He had grown up in an environment of intellectual stimulation, hearing dinner table talk about men like Lambert, Adolphe, Jacques Coutelet, a statistician who theorized no two people were alike. But Alphonse was less illustrious. He got kicked out of several schools for poor grades. According to The Science of Sherlock Holmes by E.J. Wagner, he was incredibly awkward. He hardly ever spoke. He was very grumpy and obsessively organized. He was also quite sickly. He had nosebleeds, digestive issues, and headaches. Which are not the kind of um, physical complaints that probably make you very popular on the police force either. So uh, Alphonse was unable to hold down a job, and he started his clerk position with the Paris police due to his father's influence. But really early on in the job, he realized the department's filing system was just a mess. They had that rogues gallery thing going on, and they needed a way to recognize and identify repeat criminals. So the organized data-obsessed Bertillon cooked up a system just a few months later and presented a report to his superiors about the use of some sort of standardized physical and facial measurement system. But the report wasn't written with the proper bureaucratic deference, I guess, and it got tossed out pretty much immediately. However, Bertillon's father, this influential guy, realized that there was something to his son's idea and kept pressuring the police department to review it again. They stalled as long as they could. And then finally, in 1882, they consented. And Bertillon was given some money, given two assistants, and set on the task to make this work, make this system something the department could really put to good use. So Bertillon called this idea anthropometry. It's also become known as the Bertillon system, or Bertillonage, as Sarah mentioned earlier. It focused on 11 separate measurements that Bertillon believed shouldn't change after age 20. These were the following. The total length of the arms, sitting height, standing height, the length of the head, the width of the head, the width of the cheeks, the length of the right ear, the length of the left foot, the length of the little finger, the length of the left middle finger, and the length of each arm from elbow to tip of middle finger. Which was something called the cubit. So he would use calipers, 
sliding compasses and these other carefully calibrated instruments and do three of every single one of those measurements and then take the mean from those three. And then these numbers were all entered on a card that featured a standardized mugshot. And this is the mugshot that you know today. It's lit the same way, taken full on, taken in profile. And the photo was also accompanied by some information, some stuff that might be familiar from your driver's license or from wanted posters. It was called a portrait parlay, and it would list eye and hair color, complexion, scars or tattoos, head shape, um, the person's build and their posture, and then some more unusual details like accent and voice and dress style, if the dress style was particularly unusual. And busy detectives, of course, didn't feel like they could enter all of the stuff all the time. So they slimmed it down a bit to the more standard things like eye color, hair color. But if you look at one of these cards, these Bertillon cards, it's filled with facts and measurements in that very recognizable modern mugshot. I mean, it it looks it looks kind of what you still see today, like what you see today. And after all that information was collected, then the real work began. Every card was cross-referenced so that if a policeman were looking for a suspect or trying to determine if someone in custody had a criminal history, they could check for specific physical measurements, pulling cards that were possibilities. Within a year of its adoption, Bertillon used his system to identify 241 repeat criminals, and the system soon spread from France to much of Europe and the United States. Bertillon was made the director of the Police Identification Service and even earned himself the approval of Sherlock Holmes in 1893, when Arthur Conan Doyle, one of our favorite podcast subjects, had Watson say of Sherlock in the story The Naval Treaty, quote, his conversation, I remember, was about the Bertillon system of measurements, and he expressed his enthusiastic admiration of the French savant. So, yeah, that is high praise if Sherlock Holmes likes what you're doing. So, of course, though, Bertillon's system relied on the assumption that my elbow to middle finger length and my head width and cheek width and all of those other measurements couldn't possibly be the same as someone else's. Unfortunately, they could be pretty similar and subtle differences between people could be erased by one sloppy measurement. Even if you had a, a technician who was trying to do a good job, not purposely trying to manipulate the system, if you've ever measured anything, you know, it's kind of easy to mess up sometimes. So that led to a second major problem. It was a lot of work to take all this information down and let alone file it all. The documentation, the filing were both really complex. The measurements required high quality instruments, a lot of concentration, a lot of skill. And even then, countries differed in their measuring system. So this was not an international system, even though countries around the world had adopted it. So around the height of Bertillon's fame, an anthropologist and a cousin of Charles Darwin named Sir Francis Galton read a report in Nature by Henry Fodes about fingerprints. And Galton started getting really interested in prints after that, started studying them and determined that they were unique to every person and that kind of maybe even more importantly, they don't change, even though almost everything about us can change or does change, whether it's limb length and you're growing or you're shrinking as you're getting older, hair color, teeth, even eye color can change, but your fingerprints don't. So 
Galton wrote a report in 1892, or a book, called Fingerprints, and he presented his findings that fingerprints had these distinguishing characteristics like whirls and loops and points. And he also presented a system of using them. And the system went into effect pretty quickly, although independently of, of Galton's work. Meanwhile, Juan Vucetich of the La Plata Police in Argentina was also developing a system of print identification that was used to find a mother guilty of murdering her two children. Yeah, that was probably the first of the bloody thumbprints, you know, like ubiquitous in all crime movies uh, used to identify people. But fingerprinting really caught on from there. And while Bertillon resisted as long as he could, saying his system was better, it was more reliable, he did eventually add fingerprinting to his cards as just another measurement, you know, one of, of all the other head shapes and arm lengths and all of that. So while the Will West, William West case in 1903 is often used as kind of an illustrative example of the death knell of the Bertillon system and the rise of fingerprints, a slightly later story kind of does the job a little bit better. In August 1911, the Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre. And I know that a lot of people always bring this up as a listener suggestion. The police produced a thumbprint from the thief and Bertillon's identification department got to work checking their files to see if the thief had a criminal history in France. They didn't find a match, though. So two years go by, and Vincenzo Perugia was found hiding the masterpiece under his bed. Once his background is investigated, it turned out that he did have a file in France. So what happened? Why couldn't they find him with their great organizational systems? So it turned out that Bertillon, even though he had reluctantly adopted the fingerprinting system, had only filed away right thumbprints for criminals, and Peruvia had, unfortunately, left a left thumbprint at the Louvre, which didn't do much good at all. So, as we said, that was kind of the death knell of Bertinage, even in Paris, where it had sort of held on a little longer than most places. Fingerprints became the norm in identification until the 1980s, when DNA evidence started to take over. And Bertillon died February 13th, 1914, in Switzerland. But I don't want to leave off in this episode like he should be some sort of historical footnote just because ink and paper replace calipers and sliding rulers. He really did have a pretty major influence on forensic science and on cataloging things. Yeah, he also worked with ballistics research, compounds that could preserve footprints or other impressions, instruments that could measure the force used in breaking and entering, and handwriting analysis, which also got him into a little bit of trouble when he helped wrongfully accuse Captain Alfred Dreyfus of sharing French military secrets. Yeah, that's an interesting story. Y'all can go check out that one yourself, too. It could make an interesting podcast, too come to think of it. <laughs> As we mentioned, Bertillon's photography contribution is really the big part of his legacy. He did develop that standardized mugshot, you know, front profile, same distance, same kind of lighting, still used today. But he also took the camera to the crime scene itself and attempted to remove the sources of error and manipulation that can come up with crime scene photography. For instance, he would shoot a scene from above on a high-mounted tripod before investigators could touch anything. And I looked at a few examples of, of his photos like this, and they're they're disturbing. It's kind of like you're looking in on a um, you know, like bird's-eye view, looking in almost 
like a dollhouse or something, and it gives a eerie effect to the crime, but it also gives a perfect layout of the room, which is something that can be difficult to achieve when you're shooting from the ground. And he also used something called metric photography, which helped document perspective and the relation of objects to one another, which again is something really important in crime scene photography because that can be manipulated whether on purpose or accidentally so easily. And another one of his vital contributions, which we can't leave out, one of his students was Edmund Lockard, who you might know from Lockard's Exchange Principle, a basic tenet of forensic science that states, quote, with contact between two items, there will be an exchange. Yeah, and that's the principle that investigators still operate under today. As Lacard put it, it is impossible for a criminal to act, especially considering the intensity of a crime, without leaving traces of his presence. Basically, if you are at a crime scene, you'll leave something behind, whether it's hair or fingerprints or skin, and you will take something with you, too, that could later be identified by the police. And it's an idea that I think dovetails really nicely with a belief of Bertillon's, which is careful observation and patience will reveal the truth. So um, just some, some things to think about. And I really enjoyed doing a little forensic science history today. I've kind of got criminal justice on my mind. So maybe we'll have a few more of these come up. Who knows? Yeah, and people can go check out some more information about Bertillon, right? The National Library of Medicine has a great collection of information on Bertillon and early forensic history. And you can see Bertillon cards and catalogs of ear shapes. I actually, I, I put one of the Bertillon cards on our outline so we can look at it. And it's a photo of Bertillon himself in that classic mugshot pose. He's got quite an interesting pointy beard. And then all of those measurements listed, too. It really gives you an idea seeing one of the cards, how detailed it is. And that ear shapes thing, definitely check that out. It's pretty, pretty entertaining. Who knew there were so many different ears? So I think that's probably the perfect time to go to listener mail. So this email is from Stephen in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he wrote in, Hi, Sarah and Dublina. I love your podcast. I wanted to comment on your recent episode on Admiral Yi Sun Sin. You mentioned that Yi's family had wanted him to pursue a literary career instead of a military one, then jokingly wondered why a family would do so. Probably because we're English majors, so... You know, it's a, it's a joke we're used to. Um, Stephen continues, It is true that in our modern technological society, where the safe and secure jobs are in science and engineering, and where humanities majors struggle to find work, this was not always the case. In Confucian societies like China and Korea, young men who had the means always studied literature and philosophy to prepare for the king's or emperor's civil service examination. For thousands of years, these governments carefully selected their officials from among the scholars who passed these exams. Thus, a literary career was generally the surest way to gain power and membership in the aristocratic elite. In fact, sometimes a poor village would gather their resources to put a promising young boy through school in the hopes that if he one day became a high-ranking official, he would repay the village with favors. So, yeah, I thought that was um, a, a good point to add to our episode on Admiral Yi and and helped give me a little context for for understanding why his decision was sort of a unique one. Yeah, I feel like I need to forward this email to my parents to justify my (laughs) majoring in English as well. Yeah, well, and I mean, it is we've kind of unwittingly taken that path too, I guess, ourselves, though, studying 
something like literature and ending up in what is obviously a tech job. We work for a website. So Very true. You never know what's going to happen. So thank you, Stephen, for telling us a little more about Admiral He. And if you want to suggest any more sort of forensic science or criminal history type episodes, um, you know, like maybe the police side of things, since we're usually talking about the criminal side, uh, definitely let us know. We are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Twitter at Mist in History, and we're on Facebook. And if you want to learn a little bit more about some of the ideas that we talked about today, we have an article called How Lockhart's Exchange Principle Works, and you can find it by searching for that on our homepage at www.HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future, Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. We are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.